Welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt Podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. Nuclear power. Is it safe? Is it affordable? Will it fry my balls? Is it clean? These are some of the many questions folks in West Virginia and Appalachia have about nuclear power plants and the impacts they might pose on our life, liberty, and the environment. On this week's episode of the Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast, we have nuclear expert Diane Dorigo. She's been advocating against nuclear power and nuclear weapons for four decades. We're going to discuss the pros, if any, and the cons of nuclear energy. Join me, your host, Bug Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast. It's hot. Radioactive hot. Before we dive into Diane's interview, I want to discuss the state of West Virginia potentially ending its ban on the construction of nuclear power plants. West Virginia is one of 13 states with such a ban in place. Kentucky ended its moratorium on nuclear power plant construction in 2017. Many West Virginia legislators cite improvements in nuclear technology and small modular reactors as to why nuclear power plants should be allowed to operate. Opponents cite Chernobyl, Fukushima, and Three Mile Island as to why they should remain banned. All nuclear power plants produce radioactive waste. We currently don't have any small modular nuclear reactors up and running in the United States. On Friday, January 28th, the West Virginia House of Delegates held a public hearing on House Bill 2882, which would repeal West Virginia's nuclear power plant ban and the entire state code Section 16-27A-1 and Section 16-27A-2 as it pertains to nuclear power plants and nuclear waste disposal. Here's a language gutted. Therefore, it is the intent of the legislature and the purpose of this article to ban the construction of any nuclear power plant, nuclear factory, or nuclear electric power generating plant until such a time as the proponents of any such facility can adequately demonstrate that a functional and effective national facility which safely, successfully, and permanently disposes of radioactive waste has been developed. That the construction of any nuclear facility in this state will be economically feasible for West Virginia ratepayers and that such facility shall comply with all applicable environmental protection laws, rules, and requirements. Senate Bill 4, the sister bill of House Bill 2882, passed the State Senate on January 25th and passed the West Virginia House of Delegates on January 31st, just three days after the public hearing on House Bill 2882. Senate Bill 4 is co-sponsored by West Virginia Working Families Party endorsed Senator Richard Lindsay. House Bill 2882 
is co-sponsored by former West Virginia Environmental Council lobbyist delegate Kayla Young. Kayla Young was endorsed by the Sierra Club and West Virginia Working Families Party in 2020. West Virginia Working Families Party endorsed candidates, delegates Sean Fluharty, Mick Bates, Michael Pushkin, Cody Thompson, and Joey Garcia voted for Senate Bill 4. Delegate Kayla Young says she was super excited about West Virginia getting nuclear on the floor of the House of Delegates on January 31st prior to the passage of Senate Bill 4 there. I think that this is a super exciting day for clean energy in West Virginia. This effort has been bicameral. It has been bipartisan. She insists she's an environmentalist. I do consider myself an environmentalist. She acknowledged people's concerns about nuclear power plants. Is nuclear cheap? No, it's not. Right now, it is not cheap. I hope her words come back to bite her in the ass come November. Back to the public hearing on House Bill 2882. Six speakers spoke in favor of House Bill 2882, and five spoke against it. Speaking in favor of House Bill 2882 is West Virginia Climate Alliance's Perry Bryant. I'm here today in support of House Bill 2882, although I am recommending an amendment to the bill. Passage of House Bill 2882 allows companies to begin the process of considering West Virginia to site a nuclear reactor, very likely a small modular reactor, or SMR. No one in the United States is planning to build another Three Mile Island or a reactor of that size. Passage of uh, Senate Bill 2882 does not ensure that SMRs will be in West Virginia. It just allows for that possibilities. Few people understand the very difficult transition that lies ahead of us as we transition away from fossil fuels. The International Energy Agency called it the most difficult transition in human history. The, 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 um, we need to explore developing every possible technology that reduces or eliminates greenhouse gases. It's possible that in 2030 or 2040 that we can abandon certain uh, technology as too risky or too expensive. But we should not limit our options of what technologies we should pursue in 2022 when we're facing such an immediate and what some would call an existential crisis. SS, along with good paying jobs, SMRs offers the possibility of carbon-free, baseload energy that can augment intermittent sources of energy such as wind and solar. That outweighs, in my opinion, the legitimate concerns about nuclear waste disposal. Perry Bryant thinks small modular reactors are going to fix climate change, even though the technology isn't even ready yet. And climate scientists have stated the planet needs to lower greenhouse gases by 2030 to thwart off a major climate catastrophe. It can take 10 years or more before a nuclear power plant is greenlit by the feds. Bryant was the former executive director of West Virginians for Affordable Health Care and West Virginia Citizen Action Group. While heading up West Virginians for Affordable Health Care, Bryant had a close relationship with Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield President Fred Early and often spoke of the health insurer's low overhead. In 2018 and 2019, a few years after Bryant stepped down from his role as executive director, West Virginians for Affordable Health Care thanked its Medicaid Matters Summit sponsors, including Aetna, CareSource, The Health Plan, and Unicare on Facebook. West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, West Virginia Citizen Action Group, 
and West Virginia Free also sponsored the event. All three of these activist organizations have advocated for Medicare for All, while Bryant spoke down to the idea. Another quasi-environmentalist speaking in favor of the bill that repeals the state's nuclear power plant ban is Conservation West Virginia's Neil Barkas. His organization loves nuclear, but doesn't love having existing nuclear regulations already on the books good as a result. Although it's not an open and shut matter for us, we're in favor of nuclear power. Because it is an alternative to burning fossil fuels, uh, which is something we desperately need. But we are only in favor of nuclear power if it is well regulated. Unfortunately, House Bill 2882 and Senate Bill 4 are a step in the wrong direction on the regulation front. These bills would repeal West Virginia Code 16-27A-2, which is the only West Virginia law governing how an application for nuclear, uh, a nuclear power plant should be judged and considered. So our suggestion to the legislature uh, in all respect would be to modify the bill or these two bills to remove the repeal language and to replace it with a direction to the Public Service Commission to develop solid rules for how uh, an application for a nuclear power plant should be handled. Give them a couple of years to develop these rules, give them adequate money to do it, and let them hire experts if they need it. Taking this step will signal to the nuclear industry and to all the other states and to the power industry that we are in the game and serious about nuclear power. As expected, the West Virginia Manufacturers Association's Rebecca McPhail spoke out in favor of House Bill 2882. Nuclear energy offers an affordable, reliable, and clean energy source for consumers. The nuclear industry also creates good jobs. We heard about that from a prior speaker, currently providing more than half a million jobs in the United States. As demands for energy increase and energy transitions occur, nuclear power can provide stability and security in our energy markets. For that reason, the WVMA urges passage of House Bill 2882. The West Virginia Manufacturers Association has repeatedly advocated for repealing West Virginia's tank law put in place after the 2014 Freedom Industries chemical spill that contaminated the drinking water of 300,000 West Virginians. Apparently, clean water is bad for business. Also present, rooting on the repeal of the nuclear power plant ban bill, is Brian Dayton of the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. For Brian and the Chamber, it's all about the Benjamins and opportunity. The West Virginia Chamber of Commerce has many members located in the energy sector. They represent coal, natural gas, oil, solar, wind. We really do believe in an all-of-the-above approach to energy in the United States, and we believe Senate Bill 4 is the next step in that evolution in taking down an important barrier here in West Virginia. As this technology arrives, we want to make sure that we are ripe to go ahead and take advantage of it. The technology is rapidly evolving. The time is now, and we are so pleased that this bill has been moving forward through the legislature with broad bipartisan support. Opposing the bill is the NAACP's Pam Nixon, who also heads up people concerned about chemical safety. During a January 18th bipartisan town hall discussion on the pros and cons for advanced nuclear power in West Virginia, it was stated that the repeal of the ban is needed to allow discussion. I respectfully disagree. 
a special legislative committee can be convened to research information and have discussion over several months or longer for making a before making a, a decision without repealing the ban. Depending on your final decision, this would allow you time to draft legislation for construction and operation of nuclear energy facilities and for safe permanent disposal of radioactive waste. Repealing the ban will remove the safety valve protecting West Virginia and leave a void. You and the governor have worked to improve our economy, attract and expand business, and increase tourism in our population, according to the State of the Union, State of the State last night. Our state is called Wild and Wonderful and almost heaven, and it's called that for a reason. It's beautiful, and so are its people. It is one thing to attract business and population. It's another to retain them. Don't make it more difficult by inviting another industry with the potential to cause further degradation of our land, air, and water that can last for hundreds of years. In planning for the future, we have the opportunity to advance greener energy, solar, wind, hydroelectric, and geothermal. On the West Virginia Geological and Economical Survey homepage is a map that shows we are a, and I quote, a relative hotspot in eastern U.S. with subsurface temperature high enough for geothermal energy generation on a commercial scale. On the West Virginia Office of Energy's page, it states, mile or more deep wells can be drilled into underground reservoirs to tap steam and, and very hot water for use in electric generation, for direct use, and for heating and cooling. This is what we need to develop. And again, the West Virginia NAACP is in opposition to House Bill 2882. The West Virginia Environmental Council's Lucia Valentine spoke against ending the nuclear power plant ban while also asking delegates to put some teeth in it if they choose to continue with the legislation. While it appears that the passage of this bill, or its companion bill, Senate Bill 4, Senate bill 4 is all but certain, we believe that public input into a matter this significant is very important. We urge our legislators to be sure that safeguards are put in place to further explore what lifting this ban could mean for our state. Some of the imperative questions we would like to see answered are, how will nuclear waste be disposed of and managed? How will other states be allowed to bring their waste to West Virginia? And where will these facilities be cited? How will citizens be allowed to voice their concerns if one were to go into their community? While we do believe that it is necessary to reduce emissions and transition to a clean energy economy in West Virginia, we are calling upon our legislators to carefully consider the ramifications of this bill that it pre presents to our state, its citizens, our economy, and our environment. Additionally, as we understand, since the energy from these facilities would not be available for 10 years or more, this power source is not timely transition away from fossil fuels, which needs to already be underway if we are to prevent the most catastrophic effects of climate change. The Coal Association's Chris Hamilton spoke out against House Bill 2882 with his all-too-familiar pro-coal rhetoric. Our miners wake up every single day to a daily dosage of coal bashing. They worry about the future, their next paycheck. It's no secret that our president and national liberal forces have joined 
to basically eradicate and forcefully transition our country from fossil energy. West Virginia and this capital has always been a safe haven for our miners and their families. Today they wake up to news that nuclear power is coming to West Virginia. Frankly, we are concerned that nuclear power plants subsidized to the tune of $3. billion annually will be used by the federal government and others as another way to get rid of safe and coal-fired generation. Like many of you, I'm concerned about the potential for a terrorist attack at a nuclear power plant and also the potential for a meltdown of a nuclear reactor. Who in West Virginia can afford to up and leave their homes and livelihoods should a major nuclear catastrophe occur? As many people know, the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection does a poor job at enforcing existing environmental regulations. It takes environmental organizations suing the agency to get them to enforce the law. Imagine the DEP enforcing regulations on how nuclear waste is stored, moved, and disposed of. Please contact Governor Jim Justice at 304-558-2000 and ask that he veto Senate Bill 4. Now onto this week's Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast guest, Diane Dorigo. Diane Dorigo is the Radioactive Waste Project Director at the Nuclear Information and Resource Service located in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Darigo's background is in chemistry and environmental studies. She's been tracking the nuclear waste issue since the late 70s. Dorigo helped West Virginia activists enact its nuclear power plant ban in 1996. Diane, can you tell us a little about the Nuclear Information and Resource Service? Yes. Um, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, referred to sometimes as NIRS, formed in 1978 to assist communities around the country, and we've eventually uh, later expanded around the world, who were challenging nuclear power and nuclear fuel chain facilities and also nuclear weapons. Um, in the 1980s, our focus um, became more directly on nuclear power and the dangers of it um, as there was much more uh, national and international attention to the nuclear weapons threat. Uh, we do oppose the whole fuel chain. We support clean renewable energy. We support a carbon and nuclear free future for ourselves and our communities. I've been at the organization um, since the 1980s working on nuclear waste issues and have actually worked with people in West Virginia who, uh, when West Virginia was targeted for a supposedly interim nuclear waste site um, a few de decade or so back, maybe more, um, the idea was to bring all the high-level nuclear waste from around the country to store supposedly on an interim basis in West Virginia. And uh, West Virginians challenged that, stopped that, and um, fortunately averted that threat. Two bills are floating through the West Virginia legislature, one in the House and one in the Senate, that seek to end the ban on nuclear power plants. It's really scary because the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection sucks big time when it comes to enforcing regulations. Who, for the most part, regulates nuclear the best? Is it the states or the feds? They 
The Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission is the agency that licenses nuclear power reactors and regulates them. However, uh, the agency is very much a lapdog. They do not regulate to protect the public. They regulate to enable the nuclear reactors to operate. And nuclear reactors are not one facility on their own. Like with coal, you've got mining and you've got processing and then you've got the coal factories. For nuclear power, there are many more steps in the whole uh, chain to make the fuel. The um, radioactive materials, the uranium is mined. Uh, usually out west, uh, there was a push to start doing mining in Virginia, which Virginians, after uh, many fights, were able to stop the threat of mining, at least for now, in Virginia. Uh, so there's mining, there's milling, there's uh, fuel uh, fabrication, and then there's the fuel going into the reactors. And so all along the way, there's maybe about eight or ten steps. They're the same steps to make nuclear weapons as it is to make nuclear power. It's that last step where it goes into the nuclear reactor where it's different. But in order to get to that point, a lot of radioactive waste and materials are generated along the way. A lot of communities get radioactive contamination and exposure and worker exposures. So um, it's more than just one reactor. What exactly is nuclear energy? So uh, nuclear energy is taking uranium and uranium atoms. Uh, they are bombarded with neutrons. These are atomic particles, very small. Uh, they bang into the uranium-235 atom. The uranium-235 atom splits and it forms other lighter radioactive elements, which have very biological dangerous properties. But so the uranium splits. And the binding energy that used to hold that uranium-235 atom together uh, is converted to energy that heats the water and turns the turbines and makes the electricity. So nuclear energy is breaking up uranium atoms using their binding energy to heat the water, turn the turbines and make electricity. That's the simple uh, De description of nuclear power, nuclear energy. One must consider, though, when this happens, that for every amount of energy that's formed, there are radioactive elements that are also formed. You have uranium to start with, but when it breaks, it breaks into lighter radioactive elements like cesium-137, strontium-90, and the and also into gases that decay into those so and tritium um which is radioactive hydrogen very difficult if at all possible to separate from our regular water so once these elements get out and into the body they cause cancer they cause reduced immunity therefore greater susceptibility to other diseases they cause birth defects they contaminate the environment they concentrate in the food chain. So the higher up the food chain, bigger fish are gonna have more radioactivity than little fish, um, deer or animals that um, graze on radioactive grasses or drink radioactive water will concentrate it in their meat um, and the same with cows and then it would be concentrated in their milk. What's the different types of radioactive waste coming from nuclear power plants? 
and what's their impact on the environment? So a nuclear reactor brings in uranium, the current reactors bring it in in the form of fuel rods that are filled with the uranium-235 that we talked about. So you've got pellets of uranium-235 and they're now in the form of 10 or 14 foot long pencil thin rods. A couple hundred of those rods are in an assembly. So they're held a certain distance apart. And then a couple hundred of those assemblies go into the core of a nuclear reactor. And your question is, what kind of waste is generated? Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's in the form of these rods and assemblies or whether it's in another form, there's some new reactors proposed that would have it in the form of balls, um, pellets. Um, but either way, the process is that the uranium-235 atoms get hit with a neutron and split and the binding energy heats the water or the sodium in some of those proposed reactors uh, that the heat is converted into electricity. But you still have, no matter whether it's water or sodium or any other um, medium, you still have the uranium splitting and forming cesium-137, strontium-90, Strontium-90 is a radioactive strontium that goes into bones. It's, it's often seen in the environment like calcium, so it goes to bones and teeth, and it concentrates in milk, it concentrates in, in any nutrients, in any uh, plants and animals and people where calcium would go. Can you and get then, it out of you? Pardon me? Can you get that stuff out of you? Or is it ending uh, for life? It's hard to do. Uh, well, some of it flushes through. Some of it doesn't lodge in the body. But when it does lodge in the body, it continues to give off beta particles, the, the strontium would. And it, it tends to go, like I said, to bones and wherever calcium would go, bones, teeth, um, muscle. And then the other element I mentioned was cesium-137. And it um, concentrates in muscle. And the heart is a muscle. And we saw after Chernobyl, uh, a phenomenon called Chernobyl heart. A lot of kids had heart problems. Um, it is suspected, it is believed that um, radiation uh, is a cause of various heart diseases, ischemic heart disease. Um, so when these other, when these elements form after the uranium splits, it's not like the uranium's gone, don't worry about it. It's like, uh-oh, we have way worse radioactive elements to deal with. And they last, the strontium and the cesium generally uh, stay, their half-lives are 28 and 30 years. So you have to multiply by 10 or 20 to get the dangerous life. So they're dangerous in the range of um, 300 to 600 years. So that's how long it's gonna take for it to decay wow. to a very low amount. And this happens whether it's a big reactor, a small reactor. If you're going to make nuclear electricity by splitting the uranium atom, you will form these other elements. And there are hundreds of elements that form. Uh, plutonium is formed in the reactor. Plutonium is one of the most deadly elements on Earth, and it is a byproduct of nuclear power. Uh, these elements that I'm mentioning are considered 
high level waste, if they stay in those rods that I mentioned, I said the uranium, the pellets are stacked in rods and the rods go in the core of the reactor. The neutrons bang into the uraniums, they split, give off their energy, heat the water, turn the turbines, make electricity. And then these other elements stay encrusted in the rods, cesium, the strontium, the plutonium, neptunium, americium. As long as it's in those rods, those rods are, by federal definition, high-level radioactive waste or irradiated or spent fuel, they're called. If and when those rods get little pinhole pricks or cracks in them, those elements can leak out into the cooling water. And when once they're not in the rod anymore, they have become presto, that same plutonium atom becomes low-level waste. It's high level if it's in the rod. It leaks into the water. How often it, does it leak? Most rods eventually leak. They are in the cores of the reactors for uh, two, three, four, five years. Uh, and in that time, uh, it's a routine thing that some cracks and holes occur. Uh, New reactors, well, let me to, to finish this high level waste in the rods, so called low level waste once it's in the water. So then there are filters when the water circulates around a reactor and then is, is released. There are filters that try to extract the radionuclides that have leaked out of the rods. And these filters uh, get very heavily loaded with radioactivity. The longer they sit there filtering, the more radioactive elements are in these uh, resins, filters, and evaporator bottoms. These are called, quote, low-level radioactive waste. Some of these commercial resins, these so-called low-level waste from commercial nuclear power reactors, can get more radioactivity concentrated in them than nuclear weapons high-level waste. So they get really concentrated they can give a lethal dose they can kill you if you're uh, exposed unshielded in 15 or 20 minutes so they have to be treated very specially um, they have to be shielded when they're transported to the dumps where they're buried um, so high level waste in the rods low level waste when it leaks out of the rods and gets picked up by the filters what about the plutonium and the cesium and the strontium and the uh, tritium, radioactive tritium, which is hydrogen? When they get past the filter, the filter is not 100%, and it releases into the stream, into the creek, the river, the ocean, wherever the reactor is located, then it is considered a routine release. And there are legal release levels that all nuclear reactors are allowed to release. And uh, there are legal levels to release, but there's no safe level. It is a scientific fact that any amount of ionizing radioactivity can initiate or perpetuate, can cause a cancer. So there's no safe level. What level uh, is legal, so, so no level is safe, but there are legal release levels. So you've got plutonium, cesium, strontium, iodine, neptunium, americium, uh, you know, all kinds of radionuclides, uraniums in the rods. They get into the water. They get filtered or 
ion exchanges, low level, high level, low level, and then they can go into the environment. Once they're in the environment, they're not filtered out by our drinking water facilities. In fact, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, you only have to measure for radioactivity once every 10 years at, at drinking water facilities. So it's not like we're really protected um, by the regulator. It, the, the regulator allows the contamination to allow the industry to operate. So the, what I've described here is happening in the current generation of nuclear reactors. And I would argue that, and I would have def, uh, support for these arguments, that these so-called new reactors are not new and that the same kinds of waste will be generated and released. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in the process right now of making weaker regulations to license these so-called new reactors. And I say so-called because most of them, if not all, have already been tried and failed. Are you talking and, about the small modular reactors? Yes. yes. Yeah, we're being told that small modular reactors and advanced reactors are going to be uh, different, and they're not. Uh, they're gonna still have the same problem they're splitting a uranium atom, they're still forming radioactive waste, whether it's in a big reactor or a little reactor, and there's still uh, dangers. So I've been talking about the waste and the radioactivity that's formed. You also have um, various mechanisms in reactors for, you know, to prevent reactors from melting down or from uh, having accidents. And some of the pre some of these supposedly new advanced reactors or small modular reactors have um th they're not going to have a lesser danger of accidents and the union of concerned scientists has done a uh, report on this uh, there are other um, nuclear engineers that have done reports that point out that even the so-called new reactors or advanced reactors are going to have the same dangers and perhaps more. And in the meantime, you've got the Nuclear Regulatory Commission reducing the protections. They're making new rules that are less protective for the new generation of reactors. One more thing. We hear climate change is a motivation for having nuclear. But if we're going to deal with climate change, the timeline is very short. And it is going to take at least a decade for new reactors to be approved and um, on and operating if they even ever do. Uh, so we can't rely on a completely pie in the sky technology, which has even failed in the past, to happen fast enough to really deal with the climate concerns. We've got to use wind and solar and renewables that are truly renewable. Nuclear technology is not renewable. Uh, it's, it's uranium in the ground that comes out. It takes mining and milling and uh, conversion. They have to actually convert it to uh, a gas to separate the 235s from the other uraniums. And then they have to convert it back and then they have to fabricate it into fuel. And then the fuel goes into whatever reactor it is. And 
it becomes high level, low level, so-called low level, and and will release into the environment. There, it's, it's a it's a basic physical problem that when you make nuclear power, you make nuclear waste, and okay. it lasts a long time. And and we we have to try to isolate what's generated for longer than we've ever been able to isolate. One of the big problems with nuclear power is that you can't see the radioactivity. You can't measure it with our normal senses. And so when you can see, um, you know, dirty billowing uh, smoke coming out of a, other kinds of energy factories, nuclear, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. So it's really hard to avoid it. What's the cancer rate amongst people who work at nuclear power plants? There, there have not been really good studies on nuclear power reactor workers. However, throughout the nuclear fuel chain, um, nuclear weapons and power front end facilities, um, workers do have um, higher health effects, higher cancer rates than the general public. And that's significant because usually the workers that work at such facilities are healthier. It's called the healthy worker effect. So usually people that are in their um, years, their um, working years uh, are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and uh, in the years when the uh, immunity is better and they're less um, they're less likely to get cancer. Where is uranium mining taking place across North America? In North America, uranium mining is mostly out west in the southwest, all the way, actually all the way up to Wyoming and uh, so many of the western states. We've got over uh, 4,000 abandoned uranium mines in, in the country that are threatening largely uh, Native American communities because a lot of the uranium mining is done on, on uh, Native American reservations. Uh, in fact, the Navajo uh, leadership has um, uh, passed a resolution opposing any more uh, mining on their, on their lands. And yet the Nuclear Regulatory Commission continues to approve um, those kinds of mines. So there are ongoing fights um, between that. Uh, there's also, as I said earlier, there was a, a threat of uranium mining in Virginia, and that has been fended off by local folks in Virginia who fought it. They did not want their communities to be contaminated in, in that way. There is a place up in Canada that is so, the uh, uranium is so intense that um, even the union did not want to mine it because it would be such high exposures to its workers. So uh, there are places around the, largely the West, Western U.S., and um, definitely in Canada are the main places where it's done. Now, is uranium more dangerous in its natural state or in its depleted form once it gets put through a reactor? Um, uranium, when it comes out of the ground, is, it's probably the least dangerous then because it's in, embedded in, in rocks and it would take water eroding into it to get it out into accessible to uh, living things if it's, if it's in the rock where it formed. Um, 
once it gets released, either by hard rock mining or in situ leachate mining, where they put chemicals in and actually dissolve it in the ground and then extract it up, often contaminating the uh, waterways, uh, the water supplies in that area. Um, the uranium is brought up and uranium occurs. There are different uranium kinds of uranium atoms uranium-234, uranium-235, uranium-238, and that has to do with how many neutrons are in the, in the atom. It's the uranium-235 atom that the nuclear power and nuclear weapons industries need to make nuclear power and weapons. So there's a elaborate effort done to separate out the U-235 atoms from all the other uranium atoms. And this takes an enormous amount of energy. In fact, there were multiple coal plants that were used just to separate uranium back in the Cold War when we were first developing um, nuclear weapons and before nuclear power took off. Uh, and then after nuclear power started uh, being uh, used in the U.S., uh, we were, de were depending on coal for for nuclear in order to have the electricity, the energy to separate the uraniums. So uranium in the natural state has a combination of those different uranium atoms. So when you separate out the 235, which is then used to make nuclear bombs and nuclear weapons, the rest of it is still uranium. It's still biologically, it's chemically, it's radioactively dangerous. It's called depleted, not because it's depleted in any kind of energy or, 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 or physical danger. It's only depleted in this one isotope that was separated out for use. So depleted uranium is as dangerous as, as you know, the full complement of uranium that's naturally occurring. Can you remove uranium and depleted uranium from soil and water? Uh, it's really hard to remove uranium from soil and water. Um, there are ways to filter um, some amount. You can't get it all out. Um, generally, if you've got a water supply that's contaminated, you there it would take a lot of political power and pressure to have resources expended to do the processes to filter it out and you can't get it all out. Um, so you would never have, and there's no safe level. So contaminating with radioactive elements is pretty much an irreversible pollution problem. The best you can do is remove that and then dump it on some other poor community. On January 18th, several supposed progressive organizations, many of which call themselves environmental, WVU and the West Virginia Manufacturers Association, who helped repeal the uh, tank laws twice so far, sponsored an online forum highlighting the pros and cons of nuclear energy. Good Energy Collective co-founder and co-executive director Dr. Jessica Lovering stated, nuclear produces no air or water pollution and it's low cost. Sierra calls Jen Kotkin. So what? I said that is outrageous. Yeah, the Sierra is Club's Jim Kotkin 
gave a presentation refuting Lovering's claims. Do you know much about this greenwashing nuclear organization? There are several of those um, organizations that are trying to greenwash nuclear. Um, and some of them are directly funded by nuclear entities and other ones, their funding is not as clear. Um, she claims she's not funded by nuclear, well, the nuclear industry. I was just curious if you knew who's funding well, her. Well, let me just give you an example of what nuclear is the most expensive way to make electricity. Uh, so when she says it's cheap, I have no idea what she's talking about. Um, the uh, Vogel nuclear reactor in Georgia, there's uh, two nuclear reactors in Georgia, Vogel one and two. And the only nuclear reactors that are currently being built in the US right now, Vogel three and four, they were supposed to cost $14 billion. We just learned that they are going to cost over $32 billion. And uh, they will use enough water each day uh, that would enable 1.1 million people to, to they're, they're going to use the same amount of water as would 1.1 million residents uh, to run the reactors. Uh, the, the cost has gone up a lot and the time uh, they were supposed to be operating six, seven years ago, and they're still nowhere near uh, being completed. So to say that nuclear is, is economic is an outright lie. It's, a, it's absolutely untrue. And even the small, clear. even the small modular reactors. There's is not that... even a design approved for small modular reactors. So you can pretend that they're going to cost something different, but in, they've got to get their design approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the last week or two just denied the first small modular reactor design application. The Oklo reactor, OKLO, uh, had applied to the NRC for a license, uh, for a, an approval of a design, and it, it was denied by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission usually never denies an application from the nuclear industry. It, it is uh, completely unprecedented. Uh, so the fact that this application is denied is um, quite interesting. So the new reactors, to say what they're going to cost, how can you know when you don't even know what they're going to be, what their design is, um, how much it's going to really cost to build? When they were going to, when they were building the ones right now that are under construction, and we had a hundred of these in the U.S., so they should have an idea of what it takes to build. The cost went from 14 billion to 32 billion, and the time has you know they've exceeded six or more years from when they were supposed to start up and they're nowhere near done so to say that we're going to have a whole new nuclear design and we're going to get it approved and we're going to build it and it's going to operate at, at at some amount i mean it, it's it's wishful thinking but it's not what we want to base our energy planning on and it's it's i mean if you look at the cost of nuclear now it is one of the most expensive ways to make electricity. Didn't it cost a billion dollars in over 14 years for the feds to clean up the uh, Three Mile Island nuclear incident? Yeah, Three Mile Island uh, 
was a new reactor when it melted down uh, in March of 1979. It had a partial meltdown. They didn't even know it until years later when they went in to try to clean it up. And they said, oh, wow, the core melted. Uh, it, they didn't know it at the time that that's what was happening. Um, and uh, the, the, the concept of cleanup is another issue. Um, during the Three Mile Island meltdown, during the accident when um, it got out of control, radioactivity was released. The monitors all went off scale, so they don't really know how much radioactivity was released. Uh, people th uh, had metallic tastes in their mouth. Um, there were increased health effects in the community. A lot of people have stories about um, cancers in their families. Um, and so the Three Mile Island accident was very significant uh, to the people in that community. And there were deliberate, you know, there were releases, accidental releases during the accident. But then when they were trying to clean up the site, they still had buildup of gas in the reactor. And instead of trying to isolate it or prevent that radioactive uh, gas from getting out, they actually released it deliberately into the air. And I worked when I first came to my, this organization, I worked with some of the people in that community who were fighting to keep them from deliberately releasing radioactive uh, gases into the air. And we were not successful on that. So there was a deliberate uh, release of radioactivity uh, from Three Mile Island well after the accident was over, you know, years after when they were cleaning it up. And it's not fully cleaned up now. What they've done is to take some of the, the core and move it, move it on uh, rails and roads all the way out to Idaho, where it's being stored in a facility that is perched on the Snake River aquifer system. So we've got high level radioactive material from Three Mile Island. Yeah, it, it, there's less of it on the island in the middle of the Susquehanna River, but it's not really cleaned up, it's just moved. So yes, it's been, they've spent a lot of money to do that, but it, it hasn't really cleaned up. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, um, no uranium mines are really cleaned up. There are thousands of contaminated communities and radioactive um, mines in, in throughout the country uh, from uranium mining. And the requirements for cleanup are so much less with the mines uh, that it's, it's very irresponsibly managed and it puts people in those communities at risk. How far did that radiation spread from Three Mile Island? Well, I can't answer that question because um, I don't know what kind of detection mechanisms there were. What I can answer for you is uh, in 1986, when the Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded and released radioactivity, uh, it spread around the Northern Hemisphere multiple times, the whole Northern Hemisphere of the planet. Uh, massive areas around both Fukushima and Chernobyl, big nuclear full meltdown accidents, uh, have been permanently evacuated. And although in Japan, they're trying to get people to move back in, even though it's not fully 
cleaned up at Fukushima. What I wanted to say about Chernobyl, though, is that there are scientists at the Point Reyes Bird Sanctuary in Northern California who detected uh, radioactivity from Chernobyl in the Ukraine in their birds in Northern California. So uh, the radioactivity spreads, it gets into the air, it lasts a long time and it moves. It's very difficult to detect. Um, you know, detectors are expensive and people aren't able to afford and be equipped and trained to have detectors. We can't detect it with our smell and our feel. So they get away with murder by releasing radioactivity. Um, it, it's supposed to be regulated, but there are often exemptions and then there are accidents. How is the radioactive waste from the nuclear power plants disposed of and how or stored? So I talked earlier in this conversation about um, the irradiated fuel or the, the rods and assemblies. Mm -hmm. Those are considered, quote, high level waste. And right now at reactors, they're at every reactor where they were generated. They're stored in a 40 foot deep water filled pool. And then uh, after time, a lot of times at reactors, those pools got too full. So they would take the older fuel out and put it into dry storage containers. And there are various integrities of dry storage canisters and containers, uh, casks. So it's stored right now either in the water-filled pool, 40-foot deep water-filled pool, uh, or when it's a little older, then it goes into dry um, metal and concrete storage containers on the site. Uh, that's the so-called high-level waste. Now, the so-called low-level waste that's generated, and that's the filters and sludges we talked about earlier that, that collect the radioactivity that leaks out of the rods, and they actually have to do that in the pool, too. In the pool, radioactivity leaks out, and they have to filter that water. So those um, resins and filters are currently considered, quote, low-level waste, and we have uh, about five operating nuclear waste sites in the country there are four i think that have closed and these are online soil trenches uh or, or pits the, the federal regulations allow for this waste that if it's not irradiated fuel then it can go into um, online soil trenches which are required to have 100 years of institutional control so I already told you that cesium and strontium are dangerous for 300 to 400 years. Um, if there's uranium that gets out, that's dangerous into the, the millions and billions of years. Plutonium 239, it's dangerous, uh, half-life 24,000 years, dangerous for a quarter to a half a million years. These elements are in the so-called low-level waste and they go into, um, so-called low-level waste dumps. Right now in the state of Washington, uh, the state of Utah, the state of South Carolina, Texas, and um, let's see. Yeah, it might be it right now. Let's see, we've got Texas, South Carolina, Utah, and Washington where the operating waste sites are. And then we have closed so-called low-level waste dumps, commercial dumps in uh, New York, 
Kentucky. Um, uh, we have Nevada and um, Illinois. That's the other one. So the commercial licensed um, nuclear waste sites, uh, they're, they're where the, the other waste goes. Uh, the routine releases, as we mentioned earlier, those just get out into the air and water. And so all of us are potentially exposed in air and water and the food chain to those. Many Americans are familiar with Chernobyl and Fukushima, which you just spoke about. Has the United States experienced anything similar with radiation seeping from a nuclear facility and contaminating the nearby land and waters? Besides the Three Mile Island incident. Uh well, there have been accidents throughout the, the nuclear age. The first nuclear reactor in the U.S. that made electricity was in 1957. Um, so we've had a little over 100 reactors in the U.S. There's a little over 400 in the world. Um, even if there's not an accident, there are routine releases, as we discussed, of deliberate releases of radioactivity because they can't filter it all out uh, from from reactors. And I, I mentioned that the reactor site in Georgia, if those four reactors start up, uh, they'll be taking in 127 million gallons a day. Uh, and then they'll, a lot of that will turn to steam and then they'll be putting back about two thirds of it. And that water that goes back is potentially contaminated with radioactivity. It's not supposed to be, but it can be. Um, nuclear reactors around the country, a, a large a majority of those reactors have had radioactive leakage and tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, has leaked out from these reactors. And so there's a possibility of uh, reactors, nuclear power reactors around the country um, having uh, contaminated the areas in which they're located. In fact, it's definitely happening that there's radioactivity being released from the reactors. Um, it's legally allowed. And then, you know, a lot of times we'll exceed that, but it's hard to prove that unless you've got really good equipment. You know, there's one other thing that we talked about ahead of time, and I hope we're going to get a chance to get to it, because you've got a history in West Virginia, firsthand experience with um, with the sludge uh, dams breaking and freeze. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to point out um, that one of, the worst, Creek. one of the worst nuclear accidents in the country uh, was not at a reactor, but was at the uranium mining site in Church Rock, New Mexico. In 1979, there was a, a, a uranium uh, mine and mill there and uh, definitely a mine. And the tailings that were piled up behind the dam were released when the dam broke. And it uh, was in July of 79. And the sludge, this radioactive uranium sludge, it, it ran into the river and all the way through New Mexico into Arizona, almost all the way to Nevada, and killed livestock along the way, uh, burned, uh, caused uh, problems and was never cleaned up, uh, probably because the people along that way were uh, Native Americans. And uh, so we have a real environmental justice problem, a prejudice, and um, we 
the, the Rio Puerco or the Puerco River um, was contaminated badly and with with radio with uranium sludge. So I wanted to mention that sludge release there because y'all might be familiar with it from yeah, Buffalo the, Creek. Yeah. Were they able to completely clean up that site, that river? No, they have, not, they have never cleaned it up. Is it off limits to tourists and people? Are people still using no. that water? There's not a lot of water in it. When I visited it, I think it probably ebbs and flows like many rivers uh, um, become you know, more and less. But over the years, uh, water has continued to flow. Uh, there's been much more organizing and work to try to uh, clean up uranium mines and, and mills around the country, uh, around you know the whole area in the West where uh, it's contaminated. Um, but it's it's a real uphill battle. And it's important to be aware of that when one talks about supposedly clean. Uh, you mentioned before uh, the proponent of nuclear saying that it was clean. I, I have, I believe, discounted her claim that it's cheap, but, but clean and uh, no emissions. There may be less carbon emissions. The carbon emissions are radioactive from nuclear, but there are radioactive emissions at every step of the whole fuel chain from mining and milling and conversion and fuel fabrication and the radioactive material has to be transported on roads and rails all the way until between these sites and then when you get to the reactor as i mentioned there are routine releases into the air and water of radioactivity in fact when they change the fuel out we talked about the fuel rods and the assemblies they move that around every few years They'll turn the reactor off and then rearrange the fuel, take the older assemblies out and put new ones in. At this point, the amount of radioactivity that is vented from the reactor is higher than any other time during the routine operation of the reactor. So if you're downwind of that reactor, if you knew when the fuel fabrication was, I'm sorry, when the fuel um, replacement was, was happening, it would be good to to stay away at that point. When nuclear leak incidents occurs at nuclear power plants, how far can the radiation, it how far go, do they spread? Well, it depends on the conditions. If it's a windy day, it can blow far. And if it's not very windy, it'll settle where, where, where it falls. Um, the gases will go further than the particles. The particles will fall And I'm down. referring to non-Chernobyl, non-Fukushima. Right. Just, just an average nuclear power plant. Yes. Okay. So let's take the example of the Pilgrim nuclear reactor on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's closed now. But when it was operating, there was a study that was done that showed that the routine emissions into the air um, would blow out to sea, but the way that the air currents went, it would cycle back. And so there'd be like a, uh, it would return and then it would blow out and then it would come back. So there was repeated exposure along the shoreline to the radioactivity uh, and, and it was like a, like a funnel along the, the coast, the way that the wind would make a, a pattern to re-expose re or to return. So it, it depends on the weather. Um, when radioactivity leaks into the water, it will probably concentrate along the shore of lakes rather than be diluted uh, uniformly throughout the lake. Um, 
so it, it's it's going to go where the strongest water pattern goes. West Virginia is one of 13 states that have nuclear power plant bans. Are there any other states in the nation that are considering bans? Yeah, yeah. We, there have been um, in the range of at least 18 or 20 uh, bans or restrictions on nuclear power in the country. And I got a list here for you. Uh, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, uh, Rhode Island, Vermont, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Montana, and Kentucky. Uh, those are the ones that I, I know of, that, uh, but there may be others. Um, and, you know, they, they're often questioned again, and there are places uh, like Wisconsin that reversed it, but then there are places that have considered reversing it, but not allowed it to be reversed. So hopefully West Virginians will maintain protection. You've got enough chemical industries and other pollution problems in the state, and you've got uh, a lot of wind and water and, uh, you know, the... You know, we got geothermal up north that we so can yeah. easily tap. We have a lot of geothermal hotspots up north that we could easily tap into. Yeah, I mean, in any state, it can be done. You can do an analysis and make a plan. If you plan for it, uh, you can plan to um, deal with the climate issue and not have to go from the frying pan to the fire, so to speak. You know, going from one form of pollution to another form of pollution and then have both of those that you're contending with and the health effects from multiple stressors could be worse than additive. It could be synergistic. So you could get um, even more cancer per uh, unit dose if you are also being exposed to other pollutants or stresses. What issues have been had with safely transporting and disposing of uranium waste from nuclear facilities? Uh, the federal government doesn't have um, a good record, you know, good records that it's kept, but um, I do know of incidences where, you know, two that come to mind, one is uh, in, I think it was North Carolina, they were taking nuclear waste from a reactor. Uh, they were taking some parts from a reactor and they were gonna ship it up to a reactor in New York and it hit an overhead sign and um, caused the truck to uh, crash and open up and spill. And they had to, um, dig up the whole highway and treat it as radioactive waste. They closed the highway off for a week while they, they repaved it. Um, there was an incident, I think it was in Kansas, that uh, uranium was being transported and the workers were exposed. And um, I mean, the cleanup workers were exposed. Um, and then there was some tracking done and uh, you, know, the, you can't necessarily prove that this exposure causes this cancer and this death or health effect, but um, it, 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 there's associations that can be made. And each shipment of irradiated fuel, the high-level waste, they want to. They, I said earlier that West Virginia was at one point targeted as a centralized uh, storage site for high-level waste from nuclear reactors, the spent or irradiated fuel. Uh, West Virginians said no way and got you know kicked it out. Now that those type of sites are targeted in, in Texas and um, New Mexico. 
if waste is moved, uh, each shipment has as much plutonium as the Nagasaki bomb in each container. Uh, each shipment has, um, it, it gives off radioactivity, even though it's a heavily shielded container, radioactivity, if you have the equipment, can be detected a half a mile out from the roof. And if you're making these sites happen, you're gonna have shipments for 40 years. And this is, you know, with the current state of waste that we have, this is not with new reactors being built. We're talking about taking 40 years to move all the waste that's the high level waste to a centralized place. And we don't have a centralized place that's gonna isolate it for the millions of years it stays radioactive. You hear about people consuming iodine to prevent cancer. Does it, is it, does that even work? Well, what, yeah, I can talk to that. Um, one of the biggest dangers when, uh, when reactors are releasing, um, they give off, as I mentioned, a whole lot of different radionuclides, radioactive iodine, radioactive cesium, radioactive strontium. There's a, hundreds of radioactive elements when a reactor is operating. And iodine, we know radioactive iodine goes to the thyroid. And if radioactive iodine gets into the thyroid, it continues to give off radioactivity from within and it disrupts the, the body's um, um, balances. And it's uh, uh, the, the action. That can help kill it. cancer too, right? If you have, thi well, you wait, 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 wait. have thyroid cancer. Uh, yeah, let me let me get to that in a minute, though. The iodine, okay, here, quick. Uh, iodine-131, which is used for cancer treatment, it's got a few days danger. Iodine-129, which is in the nuclear reactor fuel, it is dangerous for, uh, it's got a half-life of 16 million years, so it's dangerous for 160 to 320 million years. So it's the same, you know, like I talked about the uranium-235, and then they've got other forms of uranium. So iodine-131 is the form that's used for treatment, and iodine-129 is the one of the kinds that's made in the reactor. 131 is also made in the reactor, but since it decays so quickly, it probably isn't present in the shipments when you're trying to move the waste to a storage place. Navajo people have been the biggest victims of the nuclear industry. They've had their land and soil contaminated due to uranium mining. What's happened? And bomb testing out west. Yeah. Bomb detonation. And what happened to those 500 mines? Did the U.S. actually do anything? The mines are not, up? they're not being cleaned up yet. A few have been cleaned up. There's a big one along a river in Utah uh, and it was moved. The, 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 it was leaking into the river, so they they cleaned up that one, or in the process of moving that to another location. But the mines are largely abandoned, and and it's in the thousands, not the hundreds. In your opinion, can nuclear be safely done? No, because I believe that it is um, not safe to unnecessarily expose people to radioactivity and the radioactivity um, the radioactivity is released when the uranium is brought up out of the ground and it just continues to um, be released along the whole fuel chain through all the roads and rails and 
uh, waterways through which the, the uranium fuel moves and where all these operations take place. Workers are routinely exposed, the public is exposed. And as I mentioned earlier, let me say this again, you have the uranium fuel when it goes into the core of the reactor. And this is true whether it's in the form of fuel rods in our current light water reactors that we have operating, or if it's in some newfangled you know, pipe dream of a, an, a modern or a, you know, an, an advanced reactor, you're still gonna have uranium splitting to make the electricity and then forming these other radioactive elements. So when the fuel comes out of the core of the reactor, no matter whether it's a rod or a ball or whatever, it's millions of times more radioactive than when it went in. You're generating a whole new realm. They're called fission products from splitting uranium, transuranics from ones like plutonium that form. So the waste cannot be isolated. We can't isolate anything for as long as these radioactive elements stay radioactively dangerous. And so that's a problem. Routine releases into the air and water and the uh, environment are inevitable. And you know, may have one supposedly small. One of the things that makes me especially concerned about small reactors and putting them all over the place is then you've got more places that are forming these terrible, unresolvable waste problems and giving off routine releases. So it's bad enough that we've got maybe 80 sites right now in the U.S. where reactors are operating. If you start putting smaller reactors in more and more locations, then you're going to have more and more places that are irreversibly contaminated with radioactivity. And I want to point out one more thing about radiation and health is that radioactivity causes more cancer in women and females than in males and in youth. So baby girls are the most affected. If you zap a little girl with amount of radioactivity and you um, expose a, a middle-aged man with radioactivity, the little girl is going to get is seven times more likely to get cancer than that man because females and kids are much more susceptible. So the, the, the allowable release levels that are made uh, allowing radioactivity to be released from any nuclear facility that operates um, are not protecting kids as much as it's protecting um, adult males. Can you be an environmentalist and be pro-nuclear? I think that people who claim to be environmentalists and support nuclear don't really understand the dangers of radioactivity. I mean, a lot of people are very concerned about carbon emissions, but they don't know about radioactive emissions. And it, it's infuriating to hear people say that there are no emissions from nuclear reactors. Well, there's radioactive carbon, there's radioactive hydrogen, there's cesium, there's strontium, there's neptunium, there's, there's uh, the so-called noble gases that decay into active radioactive elements, uh, xenon and krypton gases. I mean, these are formed when the uranium splits or when it absorbs neutrons and makes transuranics, and you can't avoid it. That's that's the physical reality and the basis of, of nuclear fission. Where is our country at when it comes to finding a means to store massive energy generated through renewables? 
So battery like technology. Like a giant battery. Yeah, I, I think battery technology is improving. And, it, you know, with it, our efforts should be in that direction instead of creating more toxic, long-lasting, irreversible contamination. I've heard about hemp batteries, but I'm not sure if it would, you know, creating a giant hemp battery would hold all the power that we need, you know, from renewables, you know, to release during the night, you know, and release when there's low wind and stuff like that. Well, there's been a real, um, the, the nuclear industry likes to say we need baseload power. You know, we have to have it at the ready. But um, the smart grid could actually um, facilitate having uh, smaller amounts of electricity when needed, where needed. And we don't necessarily have to have huge uh, reactors at the ready. And in fact, when it was most needed in Texas a few months ago, and there was a, a cold, a cold uh, storm, uh, the reactors had to close. Um, when you get hurricanes, they really should close because you don't want to have operating nuclear reactors during these increased weather events. So nuclear is less reliable in, in the bad weather, and, uh, and it uses an enormous amount of water, as I mentioned, and water is an invaluable resource that we need, and it's going to become even more valuable in the future. Any closing remarks you'd like to say about nuclear I hope power? Virginia, I hope West Virginia uh, maintains its um, important ban and does not make the mistake that many other places have of going down the road of nuclear. It, it ends up being a state liability, a personal liability, um, and it's uh, you've got much cleaner, safer, available, cheaper alternatives. Nuclear power. Is something we should all be concerned with, albeit nuclear reactors or nuclear weapons. Nuclear power could easily power the entire planet, but it isn't affordable, it isn't clean, and there are serious safety concerns regarding the nuclear waste produced and how it's stored and disposed of. West Virginia may never see a nuclear event like Chernobyl, Fukushima, or Three Mile Island, but nuclear puts West Virginia into another coal-like situation where people could easily find themselves dependent on one hazardous fuel source to generate power, hold our economy together, own our policymakers, and allow the nuclear industry to get away with murder like the coal industry has. Uranium, the main feedstock of nuclear power plants, has to be mined and milled, converted, enriched, turned into fuel, and disposed of. People that mine and process uranium have a higher than normal rate of lung cancer. As Diane Dorigo pointed out, there's also been problems with uranium wire contamination through mining. The solution lies in getting West Virginians and people in coal states' minds wrapped around the need to invest in renewables such as wind, solar, hydroelectric, and if it can be done right, geothermal. On top of that, Developing a huge battery and facility for that battery to hold and disperse the energy onto the grid is essential for keeping the lights on 24-7 uninterrupted. Renewables and battery technology could create a ton of good-paying jobs and put a lot of wealth into the hands of struggling middle-class West Virginians while stabilizing energy costs. The big holdup to all that in West Virginia is piss-poor organizing being done around the environment and renewable energy jobs. I want to thank my special guest, 
Diane DeRigo for giving listeners insight into the dangers of nuclear energy. You can find out more about the pros and cons of nuclear at Nuclear Information and Resource Services website at www.nirs.org. For Mothman in the Bible Belt podcast outlet updates, guest bios, and direct links to social media, please visit mothmaninthebiblebelt.com. Thanks for listening.